0: Hey, what's up, everybody? My name is DJ, one of the pastors at PFC. And uh, this is an extra recording this week of the teaching that I gave at PFC during our services on Sunday morning. Unfortunately, the uh, the recording didn't work for the first service and the second service. I didn't give the full teaching because we had a baptism service, uh, which was awesome. And so I gave a very abbreviated version of the teaching. But I thought um, it was worth having a recording of this because it's a conversation I'd like to continue as a church family. And I continue some concepts that I wanna keep talking about in the coming weeks. And so uh, rather than bringing you the teaching that I gave on Sunday morning from, from the pulpit, um, here's a, an extra little teaching Um, here halfway through the week. um, But it's the same, essentially the same teaching that I gave this past Sunday. So we uh, just recently started a new series called We Believe, where we're talking about some of the essential beliefs of the faith. And we're starting with the word of God. So on Sunday morning, we played a word association game. And I threw out a bunch of silly words. And then I threw out the word apocalypse. And I asked everyone to... uh, raise their hand and say, uh, if they'd be willing to share, what comes to mind when you hear the word apocalypse? And there are all, all sorts of answers that were shared. Um, death, blackness, the word now from you know the movie Apocalypse Now, end of the world, destruction. Um, hurricanes, tornadoes, violent uh, events, things like that. And so basically, almost universally, everyone's sort of instinctual reaction to the word apocalypse is something to do with the end of the world um, zombies was thrown out there among other things. It's something to do with the end of the world or something to do with death or destruction or disease. And that makes sense. We have a whole genre of books and movies and TV shows that are being made that are called apocalyptic movies. And basically all of them have to do uh, with the end of the world or with the fall of civilization um, the fall of of modern uh, cities uh, cities and nations, that sort of thing. And so when we think about apocalypse in the the modern notion, it's it's very negative and it has to do with the end of the world. But the word apocalypse um, actually comes from the Greek word, uh, apocalypsis, and this word appears at a pivotal moment in the scriptures. In fact, uh, it is in the title of the last book, of the New Testament, what we commonly refer to in English, in our English Bibles, as the book of Revelation. The full title of that book is the Revelation of Jesus Christ, because the word apocalypsis, the word that we get apocalypse from, um, literally means Uh, To uncover. So if you would do a word study on apocalypsis in Koine Greek, the biblical Greek language, um, there wouldn't be anything about zombies or about death or about destruction or even about the end of the world, because that's not what that word meant. What that word meant was to uncover or reveal. So in the book of revelation, that's why the full title of it isn't actually revelation because it's not a book about the apocalypse. It's not a book about what we think of as the apocalypse, the end of the world. It's not a book about zombies. It's not a book about death or destruction. It's a book about uncovering who Jesus is, the uncovering of Jesus Christ. So when we open up our scriptures to Revelation chapter one, and we read in verse one, this is the apocalypse of Jesus. It is the revealing, it is the uncovering of Jesus that then happens through the rest of the books. And you can see that in Jesus's heart as he reveals himself to the church. And so chapters two and three are letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor there. And so in each of these letters, Jesus is apocalypsing himself. He's uncovering his character. He's uncovering his will. He's uncovering his nature to these churches. I think in this cultural moment that we're in, this is a really helpful conversation to be having. And it has to do with our understanding of the word of God. Um, Last week, when I began this new teaching series, we started with three basic assumptions. And the third one is actually the first and primary assumption that then we then build the first two assumptions off of. Um, And that is this, that humans cannot find God apart from God revealing or apocalypsing, uncovering himself to us. There's no scientific proof that we can come up with. There's no, um, no ability for me to do a chemical experiment or anything like that, that will prove the existence of God because God is infinite and I am finite. I cannot feel my way to the fullness of God. I cannot think my way to the fullness of God. I can only come to know God as he truly is, as God reveals himself, as he uncovers himself in his infinite glory and goodness. And that's not just for me, that's for all of humans throughout all of history. And so because I can't prove God in that sense, um, It's important to nuance what apologetics is. Originally, apologetics in the first century, second century church, when uh, when there were the first Christian apologists, uh, apologists worked to clarify what the gospel was. Because everyone in the ancient world was operating under the basic assumption that there was such a thing as a supernatural world. Uh, operating under the assumption that there was such a thing as God or gods. And so apologists weren't so interested in proving that there was such a thing as supernatural uh, or divine. Um, work or God behind things, what they were seeking to do was create an apology or an explanation for what Christianity was and what Christianity wasn't. So for instance, early Christians practiced the love feast, like we do at PFC twice a year today, where we get together and we have a meal and we remember Jesus washed the disciples' feet and we take communion together and we call that the love feast. Early Christians practiced something called the love feast, very similar to what we practice, although with ancient nuances and first century culture, but um, their surrounding uh, neighbors thought that they were having orgies. They were not having orgies. And so the work of apologists was to explain and clarify what was happening. Now, in the modern sense, what's happened is um, often apologists, because we live in a postmodern world, uh, apologists often seek to prove God. And to a certain extent, that's a fool's errand because we can't prove the existence of an infinite um, unexplainable force <laughs> or or person. Um, I'm not saying Christian apologists are not important. They are important in so much as they clarify what it is that Christianity teaches to a world that misunderstands it. It's an extremely important subject. But apologists in and of themselves uh, cannot prove God. It's only God who can prove himself. And he has, he has proved himself. He has revealed himself, not so much through modern science as he has through a person, through the person of Christ. He has apocalypsed. He has revealed himself. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, as it says in Colossians chapter one. So because we're operating as finite humans, Um, and we're talking about an infinite God, we have to understand that there's two presuppositions. There's two acts of faith that we take. One, that there is a God. So it's an act of faith for me to say, I believe there is a God, which I do. I believe there is a God. And secondly, um, based on this presupposition, the second then, uh, the second assumption is that this God Apocalypses himself. He uncovers himself. He reveals himself. So then we have to ask the question how does this God reveal himself? How does he speak? Um, Well, he speaks through his word, is the Christian answer. Um, So then we need to ask the very important question well, what is the word of God? The word of God, the written word of God, the Bible teaches us that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. This is one of the most famous verses in the Bible from John chapter one, verses one to three. He was with God in the beginning through him. All things were made without him. Nothing was made that has been made. First John 1, 1, same author, um, the apostle John says basically the same thing, that which was from the beginning. So in the beginning, which we have heard, so we actually heard him speak, which we have seen. We actually saw him live and watched him, which we have looked at and our hands have touched both before and after his death and his resurrection state. John touched Jesus. This we... Proclaim concerning the word of life. And that uh, phrase, that word of life is logos, which is the same Greek word as in the beginning was the word. So the word of God is first and eternally, not a text. It's it's not the written word. The first and eternal word of God is the person. It is the apocalypse of God. It is Jesus, the, the word, the logos, the eternal one, the living one. Um, and so when we worship, we don't worship a text Um, sitting on a throne. We worship God sitting on a throne. We worship Jesus sitting on a throne. And so a couple of weeks ago, I introduced this concept. And when we look at the word of God first uh, and eternally as Jesus, we see that God's word is uncreated. Jesus is uncreated. It's underived. It doesn't come from, he doesn't come from something. He is always, he is eternal. He is indestructible. He is all powerful. He is that which creates life, that which sustains life. And he is fully God. And so the word of God comes to us in three primary forms. First and always the person of Christ, Jesus in the beginning was the word. Um, But then derivatively deriving from Jesus, God's word also comes to us in two other primary ways. It comes to us through the written word which is the Bible, and it comes to us through the church or through the church proclaiming the word of God. And so this is the threefold Trinitarian sort of picture of the word of God. Another way of describing it would be God's word comes to us as the living word, the Logos, Jesus Christ, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the written word, which are the scriptures, the 66 books of the canonical Bible. Um, And the word preached, the word proclaimed, the word lived out in the church. Those second two uh, forms of the word coming to us, they are derivative of the first. So the written word, the Bible is not eternal. There was a time before the Bible existed. There was a time before the Bible uh, authors lived. There was a time before these words were written down. But The word of God is eternal. And so God's word existed. It pre-existed the written word. That does not mean that the Bible is not God's word. It is God's word, but it's God's word that proceeds from the living word. It comes from somewhere. And so the written word is not an eternal word. The living word is an eternal word that then speaks uh, through the prophets, through the apostles, through the saints who have lived um, and recorded his words, uh, then speaks in the written word. The written word then becomes our canon. And that's canon with one in, not two ins. Two in canons uh, are the ones on pirate ships that blow things up. One in canon um, is a word that means plumb line or measuring line. And so the written word is the way that we encounter the living word or is a way that we encounter the living word. The written word is God's word in so much as it reveals the eternal living word of God. Um, Jesus, uh, uh, the father, the Holy Spirit, it reveals the character of God. are. Understanding of who Jesus is comes to us from the written word and our understanding of who Jesus is as we live in a vibrant living worship relationship with him must conform to the written word. So if we believe something about Jesus that does not pass the test of the canon, the written record of who Jesus is, then our belief about the living word is false because the living word is revealed through the written word. But this doesn't just happen through text. It also happens through the embodied word, um, the socially embodied word, the church, wherever the living word is, uh, present among two or three people. That's where the church is, the church is happening. So the church is not primarily a building or an institution. The church is people who follow Christ. Um. It's the collective of Christians and the word proclaimed there among Christians, wherever two or three are gathered in his name and the word is proclaimed, then the word of God is existing again in so much as it points to the living word of God. All three of these work together and we need them all. And so, you know, if we just want a relationship with Jesus and we're sick of the Bible, (laughs) we're sick of struggling with hard texts and that sort of thing, and we don't uh, consider ourselves a part of the church, we don't submit to Christian community. Um, Then we become participants in the ancient heresy of Gnosticism, uh, which proclaimed that you could have an individual relationship with God based on secret individual knowledge revealed to you through spiritual means. Um, This is one of the earliest heresies of the church. And when we try to have a relationship with the living word without the written word and without the word proclaimed in the church, we essentially become Gnostics. When we want to have a relationship that with the Word of God, that's just based on the text, then we no longer have a relationship with the Word of God because the Word of God is living. It is the Person of Jesus, and we actually make an idol out of His written Word, um, and we uh, we unhitch ourselves from the living, breathing, reigning Word of God. Again, we don't worship the Bible; we worship the One who. Gives the Bible. We worship the one behind the Bible, underneath the Bible, the one that the Bible points to as a signpost. And so we can't just have the written word, nor can we just have the word preached or proclaimed, the word in the body. Because if we just want a relationship with the word of God as it exists in a social setting, then all we have is a social club. We no longer have the lamb sitting on the throne. We no longer have the line of Judah. We no longer have the son of David who reigns eternally, the prophet, the priest, the king, Jesus, the living word, the logos. And so any one of these words detached or unhitched from the other two um, are no longer the word of God um, in its fullness. And so the, the living word of God is always the eternal a person of Jesus, but he comes to us, he reveals himself to us through both his written word and the word preached or the word proclaimed. And just a note on that real quick. Um, lots of people claim to speak for God. Lots of people claim God's word. Whether or not it's God's word, The kind of the proof is in the pudding, right? So many, many times in my life, someone has said, hey, I think I have a word from God for you, or here's a word for you. And it, you know, as I've traveled in different circles, maybe the language or the nuancing of how that's spoke is different but it hasn't really mattered whether I've been in a more charismatic setting or a more anabaptist setting or a more conservative evangelical setting in all of those settings at different points in time different people um say like hey I think this might be what the lord is saying it may or may not be <laughs> um as much as it reveals the person of jesus it is god's word because it's revealing god's eternal word um in as much as it doesn't reveal the character, the nature, and the word of God, then it's not really God's word. It may be that person's wisdom. It may be that person's idea. It may be their best thoughts. um, But God's word is his word among us in as much as it reveals Jesus, in as much as it conforms to the canon, uh, the written word of God. I find this articulation of the word of God to be extremely helpful. I'm going to continue building on it. Um, in our next teaching, I'm, where I'm going to talk about the authority of God, where how, how we put um, authority in the word of God and how we see that. For now, living word, written word, and word preached is the concept that's important. So we see Jesus, the Logos of God, is the living word. The Bible is the written word, and the church is where the word is preached, proclaimed among the people of God. I made a new friend recently. His name is uh, Dr. Marty Folsom. He's a biblical scholar and theologian, uh, really, really helpful, um, sort of brilliant thinker. And I got to interview him with my good friend Justin Boyer uh, recently on the Netzer podcast. And that'll be coming out after Easter our conversation with Dr. Folsom. And um, in his book, Karl Barth's Church Dogmatics for Everyone, which sort of explores uh, this threefold understanding of the, the word of God, uh, which is articulated really, uh, really beautifully um, by the theologian Karl Barth. So Dr. Folsom says this, when we talk about the living word, we're talking about that God reveals God's self. When we talk about the written word, it's uh, the Bible reveals God, revealing God's self. And when we talk about the word preached um, or Proclaimed, its proclamation makes present and active the word of God as speaking to reveal God's self. In all of these cases, um, God's word is present as God reveals himself. And as the Bible reveals and records God revealing himself, and as the church makes present manifest among us, the word of God speaking to reveal (laughs) uh, God's self. Jesus says this in John chapter five, and this has been the scripture for me in this season that I've meditated on so much. He just healed a man on the Sabbath. Religious leaders are very upset with him because they feel like he's transgressed God's word. And he's ta- they're talking about whether or not he has a witness behind him that can affirm that what he's doing is from God. And he says, I have a testimony weightier than that of John. Now the testimony of John is pretty weighty. John the Baptist, this prophetic figure, um, he points at Jesus and says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There he is. Not only does he do that, but then he baptizes Jesus in accordance with Jesus will. When Jesus comes out of the water, a voice from heaven says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased, the voice of God. um, And then the spirit of God in the form of a dove comes and rests upon Jesus. That is a weighty testimony. Jesus says, I have weightier testimony than that test that testified that the father has sent me because he says the very works that I am doing, the the works that I do reveal that God has sent me. And the father who sent me has himself testified concerning me as he did through his voice um, at his baptism. You, however, have never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you for you do not believe the one he sent. Now, this warning is, is so crucial for us to receive. Jesus is talking to religious leaders who have vast portions of the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible memorized by heart. They have Psalms memorized. They have so much of the story, much more than any of us likely have memorized. They have memorized and committed to heart that at any moment they can talk about Leviticus or Deuteronomy or you know any any of these books. And Jesus says to them, his word does not dwell in you. Why? Because you do not believe in the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. But these are the various scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. What Jesus is saying is all of the word of God derives and points towards and is about the living word of God. Uh, which is Jesus, me. And so this is where the threefold understanding of the word of God is really helpful because the Torah, the Pentateuch, the written word of God is really important. It is the word of God in so much as it reveals The living word of God, the church, the community of faith is really important and it proclaims the word of God and it witnesses to the word of God. When John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, that is the word of God being proclaimed by uh, by an ecclesia, by a voice of gathered people who are God's people, the church. Whenever you or I do that, whenever we point to Jesus in conversation with another person and say, there he is, there's the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That is God's word, because it's pointing to the living word of God. And so God's word comes to us always and eternally in the form of Jesus, his apocalypse, his revealing of himself to us, the image of the invisible God. It also comes to us through canon, through scripture, the written word, and through church, through the body of Christ, proclaiming the word of God. I want to look at faith really quickly, and I want to overlay it with this. Um, I've been on a journey for several years now, Of understanding faith in a three dimensional way. I grew up in a sort of non denominational evangelical uh, church. I'm a missionary kid. Faith has been a part of my life from the day I was born. Um, And it's been my under, yeah, just such a vital part of who I am talking about and thinking about faith. I think the primary way I was taught to, think about faith was in a cognitive way that it's important that we believe the right things about God. And that, that is what faith is. Um, it's it's one third of what faith is. So we see that in John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes and the root word there is pistis, the word where uh, we translate into English as faith. So whoever believes or has faith in him will not perish, but have eternal life yes, we need to believe that Jesus is God's son and that he is the savior of the world. That is believing faith. And that is what it means to have faith, but it also means allegiance. Um, The word pistis, the Greek word that is translated in English as faith predates Christianity. So before Jesus walked on this earth, Uh, There were people who were using this word in Greek, and they primarily used it in the sense of allegiance. So Caesar or the emperor of Rome or kings of the earth demanded pistis or allegiance from their citizens. That doesn't really connotate exactly believing faith, that has to do more with a posture of obedience or or allegiance of the heart towards the ruler. And so Caesar demanded pistis from his citizens. This is why it's a radical statement in the midst of that political environment for the gospel writers to say, there's a new Lord, which is a title that Caesar claimed, It's not Caesar, it's Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we need to give him our faith or our allegiance. So they took this word that meant something in the first century context, and they applied it to Jesus. When I first understood this, it absolutely blew my mind because this is not just about cognitive mental assent to believing that Jesus is God's son. This is about the posture of my heart towards him, pledging my allegiance to him as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, walking towards him, pursuing him, obeying him. An example of this comes from Matthew 9. They brought to him a paralyzed man living, uh, lying on a stretcher. This is when Jesus is teaching in a crowded room and some friends bring their friend to Jesus to be healed by him. Seeing that the room is so crowded that they aren't able to even get to Jesus, they cut a hole in the roof and they lower him down in front of Jesus. And the word says this in Matthew 9, seeing their faith. The word there in Greek is the word pistis. It's the word faith now is a cognitive belief something that can be seen i don't think so i don't think you can see an idea you can see an idea put into action and so this is for me is an example of allegiant faith it's an example of allegiance. These people had a belief about Jesus, but not just an idea about Jesus. They had a belief or an idea about Jesus that led to an act of faith or an allegiance step of faith, where they then bring their son. Jesus sees this act of faith. He sees this allegiance to him as as savior and healer. And then he says to the man paralyzed, your sins are forgiven. Take courage. And not only does he forgive his sins, but then he, Uh, proves his authority to forgive sins by then healing the man and the man walks away. So this is an example of allegiant faith. Faith um, is believing faith. It is allegiant faith. It is also just obedience or faithfulness. And so in the fruits of the spirit in Galatians five, the fruits of the spirit are listed as this, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Again, that is the word pistis. If you look in the Greek, it's just the word pistis. New Testament, um, New Testament uh, um, translators have been hesitant in our context to translate the word pistis as faithfulness, because New Testament writers or translators in our context are translating the Bible in a post-Reformation world. Part of the lines of battle in the Reformation we drawn up around the idea of we cannot earn our salvation. And so there's been a reticence or, or a hesitancy to translate pistis as the word faithfulness, because it could sound as if we are earning our, um, our salvation through our obedience. That's not what this is. That's why a three-dimensional understanding of faith is so helpful. It is what we believe. It is so important that we believe that Jesus is the son of God with our minds. It is equally important that we believe that Jesus is the Lord and Savior through our hearts, through our affections, through our allegiance. It is equally important that we believe that Jesus is Lord and Savior through the works of our hands, through our obedience. Faith without works is dead. Pistis without obedience is dead and so faith is believing it is allegiance and it is faithfulness or obedience and in that we see that faith is about orthodoxy it is important that we have the right beliefs faith is about orthopathy it is a, it is appropriate that we have the right feelings towards Jesus the right emotions towards him as we submit ourselves to him as lord and savior and is it impo- and it is important that we have the right practices orthopraxy and so just in this one word in In the word faith, in the word pistis, we see a three-dimensional faith that has to do with our beliefs, the allegiances and affections of our hearts, and our actions, our obedience. Why am I talking about this? I've talked about this many times at PFC over the years. For those of you who are newer here at PFC, this may be a new concept for you. So that's one reason I want to talk about it. But secondly, because it overlaps with our understanding of the threefold nature of God. So, the living word, Jesus, the logos, the eternal word of God, what does he demand from us? What does he desire from us? He desires a loyal, allegiant faith that we would give him faith as the King of Kings, that we would give him the allegiance that he deserves. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess. That is allegiance. That is faith. That is the world proclaiming their allegiance to Jesus Christ and the church that starts with the church that starts with Christians, individual collective Christians giving our allegiance to Jesus. But his word also comes to us through the written word, which shapes our beliefs, that shapes our cognitive understanding of who this living word is. And so believing faith is shaped through the canon, through the written word of God. But he's not just called us to be a believing people, who give him our allegiance, he's also called us to be a living, obedient people. And that comes through the church preaching the word of God. that has so little to do with a sermon on Sunday morning. In so much as the church embodies the person of Jesus in obedience, feeds the hungry, clothes the naked, cares for the sick, uh, proclaims the gospel to neighbors, serves our neighbors. Every time that's happening, that's the word of God embodied through the church in, in faith. And so as I wrap up this uh, teaching, what I want to challenge us to think about is, are you living a one-dimensional relationship with the word, or maybe a two-dimensional, but not a three-dimensional relationship with the word? And are you living a one-dimensional or two-dimensional faith and not a three-dimensional faith? God has designed you as a person who bears his image to have a three-dimensional relationship with him. He is a three-dimensional God. He is a Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And he has designed us as persons who bear his image to have three-dimensional relationships with him. In as much as we are conforming our beliefs to the written word, we are pursuing and worshiping and adoring and proclaiming our allegiance to the living word. And we are obeying the word, the living reigning word of God, by the way that we proclaim him or witness to him, um, to both one another in the church and to the world as the church obeys him. And so as I wrap up this teaching, I just want to invite you to do like a little inventory in your own life. Um, what is my relationship w- with the word of God? Is it three-dimensional? What is my faith As it's lived out? Is it a three dimensional faith or is it a flat faith? Is it a flattened faith that God would like to, um, yeah, uh, indwell and bring to a new level of vibrancy? I want to pray as we close this time out. Thanks for joining me um, in this, uh, yeah, in this teaching. Father, thank you for your word. Help us be a people who embody your word as a church. As a collection of people seeking to follow you who never worship the text, but who use the text as the tool it is to worship the living, reigning word of God, Jesus Christ. Help us to be a Trinitarian people in relationship with Father, Son, and Spirit who live out our faith in a three-dimensional way through our beliefs, through our allegiance, and through our obedience. We ask this and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for joining us. Hope you have a wonderful day. Go with God.